the talk tonight is going to be kind of part of one sutta and then part of another. I don't remember what the word is in Pali or I probably would change it. As you begin meditating, you start to get confidence that what you're doing is good. Now the Pali word for this is sadha, S-A-D-D-H-A. Quite often this is translated as faith, but it's not the kind of faith you have to believe. This faith is the confidence that arises because you see that when you finally do let go of something and you relax and you come back to your meditation and it fades away that there's happiness and relief and you start to experience that. So you know that this is something that is very good and helpful. Yeah. Pali was a verbal language. So we have Pali in Thai text, we have Pali in Burmese text, we have Pali in Cambodian text, we have Pali in uh, Sri Lankan text, we have Pali in English. But you pronounce it in the same way, which is kind of nice, because if you know, if you have one text that has, say you have the, the Roman alphabet and you have it in another language, you know what they're saying. And you can learn the other language fairly quickly that way. An interesting thing in Pali is you pronounce every letter. Now when you see the name Theravada, it's ta-ha. E-ra-va-da. It's not it's not th like you say in the. And when you see a c, it's pronounced as ch. When your confidence gets good, you start putting more energy into your practice. Because when your confidence is good, you start saying, oh, this stuff really works. I want to do some more of it. When your energy picks up and your attention is good, your mindfulness improves. As your mindfulness improves, the tranquility and calmness and collectiveness of mind starts to last for longer periods of time. As this collectedness of mind grows, you start to see in more and more clear ways how your mind works. Now these five faculties are just kind of uh, signposts. As your confidence improves, your energy improves. As your energy improves, your mindfulness improves. As your mindfulness improves, the calmness and collectedness and clarity of mind improves. As that improves, your wisdom improves. You're seeing things as they truly are, and you're allowing them to be without getting involved with them anymore. 
you're seeing that everything is impermanent. And because of that impermanence, there's some unsatisfactoriness there. And you're seeing everything that arises as part of an impersonal process. Now, this is one of the things that's taught a lot with Vipassana. And this is one of the things I really agree with, with Vipassana people. These five faculties are very important, but actually I'd like to add one more. There I go again. The starting is always curiosity. If you're curious as to how something arises and then you see that that's the way it really does work, then your confidence becomes even stronger. And when your confidence is strong, you do more practice naturally. You know, this is an interesting thing that during the time of the Buddha, they didn't have, quote, meditation centers. They didn't have a place where the layman could come and just leave off all of their duties and come and just take a period of time and meditate. They did their meditation at home. And then they would come to the monastery and they would talk to the meditation master. So having a center where you can come and be close to the meditation teacher and be around a lot of other people that are practicing is really kind of a, a new invention and it's quite nice. It's really helpful to your practice. When you're sitting and your mind becomes kind of restless and you open up your eyes and you think, I can't stand it anymore, I'm going to have to do something, and you look at everyone else that's sitting and you go, well, if they're doing just great. And it inspires you to continue on. Now, these five faculties are real interesting things. The middle factor is your mindfulness. And, of course, you need mindfulness for the whole process. That means your attention on the right things. You put your attention on being grumpy and how much you don't like being grumpy and you start indulging thinking about that, that's wrong mindfulness. A bank robber is incredibly mindful, but that's not right mindfulness. Right mindfulness is the attention to the wholesome aspects of your personality, of whatever arises. Seeing with that attention in the right way. So even when an unwholesome state arises, if your mindfulness is good, if your attention is good, you'll see it clearly, you'll let it go, you'll relax and come back to your meditation object. When restlessness arises, then you put your attention more on calmness, mindfulness and calmness. And as you do that, you start to let go and you come back and, and come to your meditation object and then it goes away again and you do it again and you do it again and you do it again. When your mindfulness is sharp, you start to see how that 
occurs. The only thing you have to believe in Buddhism is that everything happens one thing at a time. That's the only thing you really have to believe. And then you'll see it. And that turns into, i got to believe this because the teacher said to, I believe it because I saw it. When your mind becomes filled with sloth and torpor, with sleepiness and dullness, the faculty that you need to cultivate is your energy. Now, how do you do that? Especially when you feel like going to sleep, or you have been asleep and you just woke up, as the case may be. How do you pick up that energy? Your mind is back on your object of meditation, what happens first? What happens after that? What happens after that? Now, it's not only in your mind. It's also in your body. When you're sitting in meditation, if your back starts to slump a little bit, you can take that as the start of sloth and torpor. It's just the beginning your mind's dulling out and you start to get a little bit of dreamy thoughts. Now, if your back slumps but your mind is still alert, don't pay attention to that. But when you start to notice that you have these dreaminess kind of thoughts that you're not thinking about anything in particular, then what you want to do is you want to straighten your back again. Now, one of the things that's real important and having a straight back is your hips. A lot of people will sit and the small of their back curves out just a little bit. If you want a straight back and it takes energy to keep it this way, you have to roll your hips. Just roll them a little bit and then that'll straighten your back up very nicely. And then you see that you're starting to slump again. Check that out first. And there's things that happen before that. Should I tell you? <laughs> That's the question. Your interest starts to wane a little bit from your object of meditation. And it's just a little bit. And you start having these tiny little, it's a feeling first of, uh, I don't want to watch this anymore. I'm feeling a little bit lazy right now. My mindfulness is good enough. Little tiny thoughts, but the feeling comes first. There's a feeling of dullness. It's, it's, it's like cotton wool all of a sudden occurs in, in your feelings. It's kind of a mushiness, real soft. And then those thoughts arise and right after that your back will start to slump a little bit and then the thoughts will get a little bit bigger and there's more dreaminess and that feeling gets a little bit stronger and you'll slump a little bit more and then you're off to dreamland so what you want to do is take more interest in how the process works Notice when your back is starting to slump and that little tiny dreaminess that you're not staying on your object of meditation so much anymore. Notice that. 
and adjust. Now, I don't want you to do a whole sitting of this, because that turns into a distraction, too. But you'll notice that when you pick up your energy and you, you straighten your back, that amount of energy is mostly enough. Most of the time, that's enough to overcome the sloth and torpor. You might have to do it a few times, but that's all right. Ultimately, when you see your mindfulness, you see your interest in your friend start to slip a little bit and other thoughts just kind of creep in real quietly. That's the start of sloth and torpor. So the way you overcome that, check your posture first. And if you sit over rigid, if you sit really tight, you can look forward to lots of back pain. That doesn't work. It's just changing your posture from your hips. Throwing your stomach out just a little bit more. As you do this, you are de also developing wisdom. Your mind, when you let it go, will become still. Your confidence improves as you see, ah, that's how that works. This is the way I can do that. This is how I can let go of that and notice it more quickly. Now, I've been to meditation retreats, three-month retreats, where I saw somebody that had sloth and torpor every day for six weeks. They indulged in it. It can be pleasurable, and you can start to like it. And now you have these hindrances to work with, the greed for having that, even though they were bouncing and popping back up. They would do that a hundred times in an hour sit. But to them, it wasn't bad meditation. It was kind of nice. They kind of liked it, even though it was a little bit uncomfortable. They weren't learning much. They weren't seeing how the process worked at all. They were just indulging in the process or indulging in the like of the process of what was happening. It's nice to sleep, especially when you're supposed to be working. There's something satisfying about that. The two major hindrances that we have are sleepiness and restlessness. And these guys are going to be with you until you become arahat. So you might as well get used to them and become real close friends with them and recognize them as quickly as you can. Now, when you're, you're, you've got your sloth and torpor and you start putting a little bit too much effort into it, a little bit too much energy, then the sloth and torpor will go away, but welcome to restlessness putting too much energy into it. Now, as odd as it seems, there is some attachment to the sloth and torpor. So that means that there's tightness, even though you feel relaxed. And the tightness is in your head, in your mind. So what you want to do after every time of 
adjusting your posture, relaxing and letting go of that feeling, allowing it to be there, coming back to your object of meditation. Relax. Let go of all the tension and tightness. This is the fast way to be able to recognize the sleepiness. It really works nicely. I had the opportunity to talk to this man that had so much sloth and torpor after about six weeks of watching him bob up and down. It got kind of tiresome. And I told him that this was how I overcame the sloth and torpor, so he tried it immediately. He started seeing it. But he had that habit, so it took him a little while to get over it. It, it was kind of funny when I was in Burma because there were two monks and they would get sloth and torpor at the same time. It was like they had some kind of psychic connection that one of them would dull out and the other would, would oh, you dulled out, I'll do it too. They didn't do it consciously, but I'd get done with my walking meditation and I'd come up and one of them sat on one side of me and one of them sat on the other side of me and I'd start chuckling and I started calling them the bobbing bookends. And I told them about it. And I said, you don't need to do that, guys. <laughs> you pay more more close attention. Sharpen your mindfulness up a little bit. These five faculties have to be in balance for spiritual progress. And the balancing pole is the mindfulness. That's why it's in the middle. And as your mindfulness, as your attention becomes sharper, as you become more alert, as you become more aware, your mind will naturally calm down. Become very peaceful, very tranquil, very much at ease. And with that, then you see things start to arise and pass away. Now, even while you're in these different meditation stages that I call jhana, there is the arising and passing away of phenomena. You have thinking, you have examining, you have joy, you have happiness, you have tranquility, you have body, you have feeling, you have perception, you have thought, you have consciousness, you have mindfulness, you have investigation, you have energy, you have joy, you have tranquility, you have stillness, you have equanimity, you have enthusiasm as you start to see that this really does start to work. You have decision where you make the conscious decision to allow something to be and let it go and relax and come back or not. So all of these things, they arise one at a time. That's a lot of different things while you're sitting in the jhana. And they arise and they pass away. It's continually moving. It's continually changing. 
And there are some people that when the joy arises, they really like it. And they don't want it to change. Of course, that's the fastest way to make it change. Try to hold on to it. This joy feels so nice, I just want to keep it forever. And of course you can't. Some people get attached to the tranquility. But this meditation is not being attached to anything. How do you get attached to something? You begin to think about it. You begin to have that strong craving to keep it. You have this false idea that this is here right now and it's mine. And that's suffering. As you allow all of these changes to occur, you see that everything is moving, is changing. And that's fine for it to do that. It has to be, because that's the truth. And you see that if you attach even in the least little bit, that there's major suffering that happens because of that attachment. And when your wisdom starts to develop very nicely, you begin to see more and more clearly that this is an impersonal process. I've always loved the word ignorance. The root of the word is the verb to ignore. What are you ignoring? What we always ignore and we always get caught by is the belief that these are ours. Oh, this restlessness of mine is so amazing. I can't stand it anymore. I want it to be different than it is. And you start pushing and you're taking all of these thoughts and all of these feelings personally. And you're tightening down around them. And the tighter it gets, the more it hurts. The stronger that feeling of restlessness becomes, which is not a pleasant feeling. And that's when you come and you say, I don't want to do this anymore. I want to go home. But the question always is, how did it arise? Whose is it? Have you been ignoring some part of this aspect of the meditation? Have you been developing this ignorance? Have you been cultivating it? The instructions are very clear what you do with it. You see it the way it truly is. You see it with wisdom. It's not me. It's not mine. I got no control over it. It's only this feeling, and it's only these thoughts. So let's let go of the thoughts and relax. The thoughts are force, trying to control a feeling. So we have to let go of the thinking about. Then we've tightened around this feeling because it is unpleasant. Restlessness is not nice. And we have to allow that feeling to be there. I don't care how much it hurts. 
One time I was uh, working with a lady that had cancer of the stomach and she was about a week away from death. And the cancer had spread throughout her body. And her brother came to pick me up and took me to her house. And as I was walking in, she was going, Oh! Oh! And she'd been doing that for an hour. So I walked in and I said, Why are you doing this? She said, The pain is so intense, I just can't stand it anymore. So I said, Can you relax a little bit? Can you let that feeling be there without trying to push it? Without trying to control it? And then I told her a joke. And she giggled a little bit, and she started feeling better. Humor is amazing healing. There's amazing healing in humor. Because that helps with perspective. And I told her to relax. Stop tightening all the muscles around her stomach. Stop tightening the, the muscles in her body. Just relax. Let go of all of those. Now relax the tightness in your head. Now come back and just listen to what I'm saying. You must relax no matter what. You must keep opening up and allowing the sensations to come and change and be the way they're going to be. And she was a quick learner. And she started doing that. She didn't do that for the rest of her life. She started seeing with the proper perspective she let go of the ignoring that this is a process. She wasn't taking it personally anymore. She wasn't trying to control it. She wasn't indulging in this sensation anymore, or sensations. And her mind became calm. She started using her mindfulness in the right way. She used her attention to try to see how her mind would go to this thing, would go to this sensation, how it moved. When she died, she actually had a smile on her face. It's pretty amazing for somebody that had that much pain. I'm not sure she was smiling because the pain finally let go and made her happy, or that she was finally accepting whatever was arising. Now you have seven factors of enlightenment and I've already mentioned them. And these factors of enlightenment are in each of the jhanas even though it's not necessarily mentioned in uh, on most of the suttas. You still have to have the seven factors of enlightenment while you're in each of the jhanas. If you don't, you don't have the balance of mind. You don't have the equanimity. You don't have the tranquility and the calmness. You don't have the energy. You're not able to investigate and see how things arise and pass away. You don't have the mindfulness. That means you don't have the jhana. The first factor of enlightenment is mindfulness. Now, 
It says in the Four Foundations of Mindfulness. This is one of the fourth foundation. This is one aspect of it. There's, there's many more. Again, monks, a monk abides contemplating mind objects as mind objects in terms of the seven enlightenment factors. And how does a monk abide contemplating mind objects as mind objects in terms of the seven enlightenment factors? Here, there being the mindfulness enlightenment factor in him, a monk understands there is the mindfulness enlightenment factor in me. Or there being no mindfulness enlightenment factor in him, he understands there is no mindfulness enlightenment factor in me. And he also understands how there comes to be the arising of the unarisen mindfulness enlightenment factor and how the arisen mindfulness enlightenment factor comes to fulfillment by development. What did all of that mean? It means you recognize when your attention is on your object of meditation. It, you recognize your, that your attention is very sharp when you see your mind go away. It means your attention is very good. And you know when it's good. And you know when it's not so good. You understand that. Now, how do you bring up the unarisen mindfulness factor? How do you do that? By seeing that you're not being mindful, you're not, you're not being attentive, you're not seeing clearly, and you start taking more interest in what you're doing in the present moment. If it's letting go of the sensation instead of thinking the sensation and trying to control the sensation, at that moment, when you're trying to think the sensation and make it be the way you want it to be, there is no mindfulness factor arisen in you. When you see that that's what you're doing, and you let go of the thinking about and relax, and you let go of that tight mental fist around that, and you relax, and you redirect your attention gently back to your object to meditation, that is how you bring the mindfulness factor up, by paying more attention, by seeing how the process works instead of trying to be the process. Now, how do you keep that mindfulness factor going so that you can go deeper into your meditation? By staying with your object of meditation, taking interest in that, continuing with the meditation, feeling that loving kindness, feel that flow that's really wonderful, really nice. Make a wish when that flow starts to weaken. Now your mindfulness is sharp. If your mindfulness dulls out, that feeling is going to disappear and then a whole series of other things is going to pull you away. It doesn't matter whether you're in the jhana or not. It doesn't matter what stage of meditation you're in. If your mindfulness dulls out a little bit, 
that leaves a little crack in your awareness and those pesky little hindrances, they're skinny. They'll get through the least little crack. And now you have the hindrance to deal with. And the hindrances are a necessary part of your meditation. I don't care what name you give it, whether it's restlessness or doubt or sleepiness or dislike or wanting. It doesn't matter what you call it. You need to pick up your mindfulness again and see how the process works. Always seeing it as a process, not as me, not mine, not I. And it's always letting go of the thoughts, if that's all it is, and relaxing and coming back to your object of meditation, if it's a feeling, then letting go of the thoughts, relax, let go of the feeling, relax, come back to your object of meditation. And the hindrances, are they're actually really good, especially when they're strong. People come and they start talking to me and complaining about, oh, that restlessness I had today was driving me crazy. Oh, good. That means that you have to roll up your sleeves and go to work. And that makes me happy. Now, when people come and they tell me, I had this two-hour sitting and it was absolutely brilliant. It was wonderful. And in my mind, I'm thinking, oh, you got some candy. You don't have to work now. It's easy. Come on back and talk to me about your hindrance again. I like that. I've been accused of being a sadist. But that's where your real progress comes from, is working with the hindrance and letting it go and realizing how that hindrance arose and why it arose. Why? Because my mindfulness became a little bit weak. I wasn't paying so much attention and I started indulging in something else a little bit. Just a little bit. And then you have to work with this troublesome thing in your mind. In my mind, it's your best friend. Now, there does come a time when you need to use your thought to contemplate, why did that happen like that? You do have to analyze, but it's only a tiny bit. And it's just using your, your thought one time, not having repeat thoughts. But sometimes you need to try to figure out, you know, I didn't see that very clearly. Why did that happen like that? And then you start reflecting, I was on the object of meditation very nicely. And what happened right after that? Oh, that's right. This little tiny thought or this little tiny feeling came up and I started paying attention to that. And then all of a sudden I was away on some wild uh, boat ride here, down the rapids. So this is by your thinking in this way, and you do this only a limited amount of time. I can't stress that enough. You're learning more about the process. You're learning about being able to recognize how that change occurred and how 
that little tiny thin crack in your mindfulness let in this hindrance and knocked you right out of the jhana because of the now you're carried away. When your mindfulness is very sharp, you will stay on the object of meditation for a long period of time. And your meditation is going to be very comfortable. You'll be very much at ease. So now I've talked about two of the factors of enlightenment your mindfulness and your investigation. Now here they call it investigation of states, which makes no sense to me at all. Investigation of your experience, that makes sense. As you investigate and see how these different hindrances arise, it takes energy. And with that energy, the hindrance begins to fade, little by little, until finally, pop, gone. What happens right after that? Your mind feels joy. You feel relief. You feel truly wonderful. You feel like somebody's taken a rock that you didn't even know that you were carrying, this heavy load, and now it's taken off. And you feel good. After a little while, that joy will fade. It'll be there for a while. If you stay on your object of meditation very lightly, it'll stay for longer. But eventually it changes. Now you're seeing impermanence again. Now you're seeing dissatisfaction because that joy is nice. But you're seeing it as part of an impersonal process. Right after the joy, you feel very, very peaceful and tranquil at ease. This is the candy part of the meditation doesn't take any effort at all to stay with your object of meditation. And it's good. You feel so peaceful, so calm, so much at ease. And with that tranquility, there's stillness of mind. Your mind feels peaceful and it just doesn't move. It just stays there right, very nicely by itself. Your mind is very composed at this time. And with that composure comes equanimity, comes balance. And this is directly the way that leads to enlightenment. When all of these factors are perfectly in balance, Nibbana arises. So these seven factors of enlightenment are real important. And you can divide these up a little bit, and when your mind is dulling out and the sleepiness arises, then you focus a little bit more deeply on your mindfulness, your investigation, your energy, and you work with those. Equanimity means complete balance of mind. Whatever arises, your mind is completely balanced with it. 
most of the time we're flip-flopping. But as your meditation gets better, your balance of mind gets better. Now, when you first started out meditating, the first day you meditated, you were walking through the mud. Your balance of mind wasn't very good. But as you begin to go deeper into your meditation, you get more and more balance. You don't get so carried away thinking about this and that. You start to see things more the way they truly are. And that balance becomes very fine after a period of time. That's not a word you hear very often, I suppose, because there's not a lot of people that practice that. The tranquility factor is one of immeasurable peace and calm. It is a very strong feeling, along with the equanimity, it's quite strong. The stillness of mind in Pali is called samadhi. And this is the word that's it's probably the most misunderstood word in the entire Pali language, because it's always concentration. It's been in the commentaries over and over and over again. They talk of samadhi as absorption, concentration, one-pointed concentration, and it's not. And that's not the meaning of it. Now, the Buddha made this word up. It was never used in the Pali language before the Buddha used it. Now, they had one-pointed concentration long before the Buddha came around. So why did he decide to use a different word instead of the other words that they were using for one-pointed concentration? He used this particular word, and the, the way I found out that it was never used before was I read it in the Pali English Dictionary by Rice Davis, which was really an eye-opener for me. He used this word to describe a particular kind of state of mind, not the one-pointed concentration, because he would have used the other words that were already being used. He used the word samadhi to describe this very composed, calm, still mind. And that's one of the differences between a lot of the commentaries and the original meanings of the Buddha's words. Your mind at times can become so still, so peaceful, so at ease, that your meditation can last for a very long period of time and it won't feel like it lasted that long. You can sit for an hour and a half, two hours, three hours, four hours, and you can sit very much at ease. You won't have a lot of pains arising in your body at all. The equanimity that you experience is very strong. It's very, very stable balance of mind. Now that doesn't mean that if a sound doesn't arise you won't hear it or something bumps into you you won't feel it but it also means that 
your mind will go to that and treat it just like it was a distraction. Oh, my mind went there, let it go and come back. I have had students that would get into this kind of state and they could stay in it for very long, up to eight hours, which was kind of nice. Because when they would get out of meditation and they would come and they'd say, you know, I just can't believe it. I can't believe it sat that long. It only seemed like it, at the most it was 45 minutes. But your mind is so still and so it's not absorbed into any object. It's very much fully aware of whatever is around it. But there's no wobbling. There's no movement. Your mind just is very peaceful, very calm, very much at ease. And when your mind is like that, so is your body. Now, any time right after you have a long sit, you should walk a little bit more briskly than you normally do for a longer period of time because you've been sitting in one place for a long time and you need to get your circulation moving again. That doesn't mean that you still can't have that same peace and same balance and stillness of mind while you're doing the walking. You can. You can carry this with you with all of your activities and there is immeasurable relief you can walk around without having any kind of distracting thoughts for long periods of time. And you'll just have this little smile on your face because there's such relief. And this joy that will arise because of this is this all-pervading joy where it just kind of bubbles out of every cell. It's truly a wonderful experience. It's truly nice. Eventually, your mind will get to a state where the cessation of perception and feeling occur. And that's just click. There's no perception. There is no feeling. It's kind of like a blackout, but there's more to it than that. When your perception and feeling come back again and your mindfulness is real sharp, you will see the dependent origination arising and passing away, arising and passing away. And then you'll see the cessation of all of these different states. Now this is the second noble truth and the third noble truth. You are realizing the noble truth. They're not a philosophy. The only way you can experience Nibbana is to realize the noble truth. And then Nibbana occurs. That's something that I don't know how to talk about and I don't know of anybody that does because we have conditioned words and that's unconditioned. That's beyond anything that we can describe. But the Buddha did describe this as the supreme happiness just because there's no suffering ever arising. Okay. Now, there was a monk by the name of Anuruddha. He was a cousin of Ananda, 
and he was a very famous monk. Now, while he was going off and doing his meditation, he was famous because he had the divine eye, and he was foremost of anybody in the divine eye. He can put his attention on any distant galaxy, and he could see it just like he was standing on a hill looking down at a village. He could see it. And if he kept his attention there, he could go visit. Now, he was sitting in meditation, and he started having some thoughts come up about what it takes to be a great man. And as he was doing that, the Buddha read his mind. And psychically, he appeared right in front of Anuruddha. And he said to Anuruddha, well done, well done, Anuruddha. You have well pondered over seven thoughts of a great man. That is to say, this Dhamma is for one who wants little, not for one who wants much. This Dhamma is for one who is content, not for the discontent. This Dhamma is for the secluded person, not for one who is fond of society. This Dhamma is for the energetic, not the lazy. This Dhamma is for one who set up mindfulness, not for the laggard therein. For the composed, not for the flustered. For the wise, not for the unwise. But Anuruddha, do you also ponder over the eighth thought of a great man? This is one that Anuruddha hadn't considered. This Dhamma is one who likes and delights in, and they use a Pali word called Nipapancha, not for one who likes and delights in Papancha. Papancha means concepts. In other words, someone that doesn't take delight in concepts is someone that sees the way things they truly are as they arise, as they pass away. And you don't put any thoughts into that. You don't put any ways of trying to describe it. The average person is walking around in states of concepts all the time. But a person that is fully awake, a person that is an arahat, they have no concepts. They see the way things truly are without any conceptual thinking about it. Now, these seven things that he thought of were pretty interesting. For one who wants little, not one for one who wants much. The more material things you gather the more you want. Now, the Buddha talked about this on a number of occasions, and he said, the normal human being, if someone were to give them an entire mountain of gold, would want more. Not satisfied with one, I want two, I want three. Mind by nature is very greedy, and it wants what it wants when it wants it. And therein lies a lot of suffering, a lot of pain. 
for the contented, not for the discontented. What does contented mean? I looked it up in the dictionary. It means happy. It means at ease with what is right now. It means when you're practicing your loving-kindness meditation and nothing happens, but you keep doing it, you're content. You're happy with this right now. If something positive happens from it, you're happy with that. If a hindrance rises up, it makes me happy. doesn't necessarily make you happy, but happiness does arise. When you get discontent, then you get dissatisfied. Then you want, oh, I can't stand this restlessness. i got to move a little bit. I don't like this feeling. I want it to be different than it is. When your mind becomes discontent, then you get involved in thinking. And that thinking is always trying to control the feelings that arise. And it always leads to more and more suffering, yes? Yes, there is a difference between tranquility and contentment. This Dhamma is for the secluded, not for one who is fond of society. You know that by this meditation, don't you? If you've experienced even a little bit of joy or a little bit of happiness through the mental development of this meditation, do you think you could have experienced that when you were at the mall? kind of hard to have a calm mind when you're there. There are so many different things to look at and things to play with and things to try on and things to like and things to dislike. You get completely caught up in the craving and clinging and believing that all of these wants and not wants are you. You can never experience this kind of peace and calm at first. There are times when you have developed your mind enough that you can go any place and it's the same. It doesn't matter. It's like I was talking a little while ago about going to uh, New York City. And a friend that took me to New York City started complaining almost immediately about how much they didn't like it. But I didn't see much difference between being there or sitting at her house. There wasn't. There was more things around, but it didn't really catch my eye because I was guarding my eyes. I was guarding my eye door, and I was guarding the ear door, so the sounds didn't really upset my mind. Now I was practicing that at her house, guarding the eye door, guarding the ear door, the same. Oh, but when you go to the city, there's always this and that, and all of these different things happen. Okay. So when you really develop your mind to a nice degree, it doesn't matter where you go. It's all the same. Yeah, there's different colors and there's different people and there's different this and there's different that and it's all the same. I had one friend in Thailand that he would invite me to his house and after that he wanted would always take me, instead of taking me back to the monastery, he would take me to the uh, department store. 
And I never could figure out why he did that, but okay. Now that's a place for laymen, it's not a place for monks. So while he went into the department store and did whatever he did, I stood right beside the door and I, I was very happy. I was very content. I wasn't indulging and looking and getting involved in that. I know that a lot of Thai people raised their eyebrows because they saw a monk in a place for laymen. But I was guarding my eye door and I was guarding the sense doors very closely because I knew that this was a busy place. And as a result, by if my eye got distracted, I saw, I let go, I relaxed, I came back. And I was still practicing the meditation. So I was contented being there, even though that wasn't necessarily a good place for a monk to be. Now, when I get into crowds of people, I have a real strong tendency to start radiating loving-kindness to everybody. So that was my object to meditation. Loving-kindness. Keep opening and relaxing. Wishing everybody happiness. Because you know that everybody in the mall, everybody in a big department store, they're stressed out. They see so many things and they have to touch so many things and they talk about so many things and it's all nonsense. It's nothing to get attached to at all. And yes, there are occasions I like to go to a store to look at things, but not all that often. Sometimes somebody will, will take me somewhere and they say, I have to go in the store. I say, that's okay, I'll just wait here. doesn't matter. It's all the same anyway. But it's, sometimes it is very good to get in crowds and start radiating loving kindness. It's good practice for you. Now here's an experiment for you. Next time you get in a big crowd, walk around with a sour face and see how many smiles there are. And then start smiling. Not at anybody in particular, just start smiling and start radiating that nice, warm, fuzzy feeling, wishing everybody well. Watch how everybody changes. You affect the world around you. The more you can smile, the more you can laugh, the more you can be at ease wherever, you're with what, wherever you are or with whatever you're doing, the more you affect the world in a positive way. Now, when I came back after 12 years of being in Asia, coming back to the United States was a complete shock for me. I mean, it was such a strong culture shock, I couldn't believe it. And you know what I felt? I felt fear and I felt greed. And it was almost overpowering. So how do you handle those kind of feelings when they arise? You accept them, because the truth is they're there. And you don't indulge in it and say, well, I'm, I, I don't like this fear, I want it to stop. You start indulging in the fear, and the fear is going to get, you're going to get caught by it. And it's going to be really miserable. And I felt this at the airport right as we landed. 
It's like the mass consciousness is so strong in this country of fear and greed that you don't even have to be around people to feel it. So when you start developing a mind that's content, a mind that wants little, a mind that's helpful for other people, a mind that's at ease, not resisting all of these feelings and sensory inputs that arise, as you start allowing and relaxing and letting go and radiating loving kindness to all these beings that are suffering so much, you are affecting the world around you. Somebody took me into a grocery store and I was standing at, um, waiting for them to pick up the things and, and as we were going through the line I, I looked around and there was a lot of people in line and they all had kind of grumpy faces. So I, I told this friend, I know what let's do. Let's play. Let's both stand here and radiate loving kindness to all of these people. And we did. And then we started looking around and then we started seeing little kids laughing and we started seeing grown-ups kind of playing with the kids instead of being upset that they had to wait in line. And we started seeing that this was really nice. So we continued. And we got everything and it was all paid for and we're walking out and two women walked up to us and said, thank you for coming in the store. And they were customers. Amazing. <laughs> the more we can focus on being happy and being content, not getting into desires and wants and cravings and demands and stress, the more we affect the world around us in a positive way. It's just that simple. When you're content, that means you're happy with being here in the present moment. You might not be necessarily tranquil. Tranquility is that very, very strong sense of peace. So that's what the difference is. So the more we can practice here right now, by letting go of all of the things that distract our mind and pull our mind away, and we start playing with them. Let's turn into four-year-olds and just play. If you ever see a four-year-old, even when they fall down, they might cry for a moment, and then 30 seconds later they're up doing something else playing. Let's be that way. It keeps your mind light. You don't take all of these things personally. You keep letting go. You keep opening up. You keep relaxing into everything that arises. That's how you develop your wisdom. That's how you develop truly seeing the way things are without any concepts without any, um, the word isn't come, expectation, that's a good one. 
that wasn't the word I was thinking, but that'll work. Thank you. Because every time we expect something, every time we assume that what we think is right, there is dukkha. There is suffering. And there is more that we're holding on to. So what do we do? We have to let it be. Let go of the thoughts about it. That's a concept. Let go of that feeling. Always relaxing. Letting go of that tension and tightness in your head, in your mind. Now, in your brain, you have two glands. One of them is a pineal gland and one of them is a pituitary gland. And these glands are responsible for the natural drugs in your body called melatonin and serotonin. As you keep relaxing, as you keep letting go, these natural drugs start being released into your body. And you start seeing things much more clearly without getting caught in the thoughts about things. That's how it works. Now these are on, they're between the two lobes of, of the brain. And there's tension between these two lobes. And we have to keep opening and relaxing and opening and relaxing and opening and relaxing. Letting go of this false idea in itself. When you have perfect balance, when you have this equanimity that's absolutely perfect, and all of the enlightenment factors arise, two halves of the brain release all of this melatonin and serotonin and that is how the experience of Nibbana occurs isn't that odd they've just found out in the last 20 years that this is what happens and I don't know for sure that that's true I mean, that's, I, I read somebody else's wandering mind on that. And it seems right. But whether it's absolutely true or not, I don't know. 